I'd like to begin today by sharing a part of one of my favorite stories. Originally published in 1862, Les Miserables, or Les Mis. I can see some of you shaking your heads up and down. You're with me. It's considered one of the greatest novels of the 19th century. It's since been adapted into multiple films, some more recently than others. And as far as I could see when I looked this up, it still holds the title today, the musical rendition does, for the most popular musical in the world. Something like 70 million people in 40 plus different countries have seen this thing. It's a popular story. But uh, truth be told, I have never read Victor Hugo's 1,500 page book that took him 17 years to write. 1,500 pages. That would take me 17 years to read. I'm, in fact, very content with the musical. And my favorite scene just screams the gospel. There's a man named Jean Valjean who, as a young boy, steals a loaf of bread and is imprisoned for 30 years in the chain gang. And finally, after 30 years, he is released on parole. And he returns to society only to find out that it is a dark place where he's just treated like dirt everywhere he goes and everything is broken. With the exception of grace extended to him through one man, a bishop, a pastor, calls him out off the street and welcomes him into his home, gives him a warm meal, sits at the table with him, treats him as an equal, gives him a place to sleep, a place to lay his head, dry roof over his head. And how does Jean Valjean return this kindness but by waking up in the middle of the night and stealing all the bishop's silverware? But he wouldn't get very far. The police catch him. They bring him and the silver back to face the bishop and they say, this man stole your silver and he claims, can you believe this, that you gave this silver to him. If you know the story, you know how the bishop responds. Unlike we would expect. He says, you're right. I gave it to him as a gift. You can release him. So as the police begin to take the shackles off of Valjean's hands, as if he had done nothing wrong, he is free. Now we might expect the bishop rightfully so, to send Valjean back to prison for the rest of his life. He could have done that. But he frees Valjean from that. But the best part of the story is not just that he freed Valjean from his imprisonment, but that he took, in addition to all the silver Valjean already stole, the bishop then takes two silver candlesticks worth more than all the silver Valjean took. And he gives them to Jean Valjean and says, My friend... You left the best behind. You left the best behind. I keep these two candlesticks on my desk, and they might be familiar to some of you because I purchased them at the church yard sale a couple years ago. <laughs> but I keep these on my desk to remind me of this story, which reminds me of the gospel. For when I was searching for salvation in all the wrong places, and when I was so undeserving, 
God pardoned me from the punishment that I deserved. But more than pardoning me from the punishment, he gave me the best. The best of all. He gave me everything I needed to live a godly life. A life of joy and freedom and peace everlasting. He gave me the gift of being able to be in a relationship with him. He adopted me into his family. Don't leave the best behind. That's part of the message of Galatians, our journey rooted in the gospel. You see that picture of the boat there. We have the foundation. We have freedom in Jesus Christ. What we need to do is we need to live into it. We ought not to leave the best behind. So that's what our text talks about today. We're going to see in our text that we come to a great appreciation of what we are saved from. Yes, we also need to remember what we are saved into, and that is God's family. And as parts of God's family, we're going to learn that we are heirs of overwhelming grace. And that is what being a Christian is all about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? Okay. I'm going to pray for us, invite God's help for our time in his word, and then after that we'll read it together. But would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pause now before entering your word to thank you for it. We thank you that you do not leave us on our own to figure out what you are like or how we ought to live in this world. But you show us these things in the Bible. Thank you for this gift. And that is our prayer right now that you would do just that. Show us what we need to see this morning in your word. Would you, God, speak in this room? Open up our hearts to hear what we need to hear this morning and plant that truth in us so that we can be changed. We pray all these things so thankful in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. This is God's word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Lots to unpack and revel in today. So let's get right to it. First couple words of our section. Verse 1. In my Bible, it's an ESV, it says, I mean that. Maybe your Bible says something similar, like, What I am saying is, or now I say that. 
These phrases are clues for us that Paul is continuing a previous thought, right? Continuing an argument that he already began. And as Bible readers, we need to be alert to these types of clues that let us know we need to go back from where it is that we're reading, wherever we are, and see what the full argument is that we can understand those words that we're reading. Literary context, so important, so important as we read the Bible. And so in this case here, we have this clue that we need to go back. So let's head back to chapter 3 and see exactly what Paul's talking about here. So if you can think back to last week, the end of chapter 3, Pastor Jay preached last week and he talked about God's kindness in giving us the law. That's what Paul's talking about. He's answering the question, if the law doesn't save, then why did God give the law? That's what Paul is addressing here. And see what he says here about the law in verse 23. It's chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, stop there a second. Take note of that time stamp. Keep it in the back of your mind. Before faith came. We continue on. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Stop right there. So Paul, right there, has established in those two lines the argument that he is going to continue in chapter 4, where we pick it up. And notice what he says about the law, that it is something that he calls our guardian, something that held us captive, that imprisoned us. These are strong words. But notice how he frames the law's enslavement. That is, when did this occur? Remember that timestamp. Look at two of them in verse 23. Now, before faith came. Later on in the verse, until the coming faith would be revealed. And then the big one in verse 24, all of this, until Christ came. This enslavement under the law was a pre-Christ reality pre-Christ reality. Before faith came. That's what Paul says. That is before saving, justifying faith in Jesus, the law acted like a guardian, holding souls captive until Christ came. When Christ came, everything changed. When Christ came, everything changed. So Paul is very clear in his framing. You see the distinction before Christ after Christ. And you'll see that reflected on your study notes there with the two headings. It's on a more of an individual level on your study notes. Before Christ, a slave under the law. And the second heading there, after Christ, an heir under grace. Paul is contrasting our condition under the law versus our condition <laughs> under grace. Bless you, Nancy. My good friend, Nancy Weinbrenner, set to stun. Paul is very clear. Before Christ, after Christ. Contrasting these conditions. We have a condition under the law. We have a condition under grace. Very different. And this change applies on two different levels. It applies on the grand level, the grand scheme of eternity, that is time, history, and the history of God's redemption for all time is his. And on that grand scheme, there are two ages. There's the age before Christ, that is the age of the law, and then there is the age after Christ came. For our purposes today, we'll call it the age of grace, the age of the law versus the age of grace. This condition change applies on the grand scheme of redemptive history, but it also applies 
as we'll see, especially in our text in verse 7, that this applies on an individual level as well. It applies to us as individuals. For each of us who believe on Jesus, there is a radical shift in reality before we came to know Christ and after we came to know Christ. Now, whether we live into that reality might be a different story. But the fact of the matter is, there is a change in our status before saving faith in Christ and after saving faith in Christ. Are you seeing this before and after? One of the major reasons why this letter was written by Paul is because many of the Galatians were failing to live into the reality that Christ purchased for them on the cross. The reality was already purchased, the work already done, but they failed to live into that freedom of grace. But Paul is clear, the redemptive work of Jesus matters in the here and the now. There is joy now, there is freedom now, there is life now in Christ Jesus. This condition change matters now. So as Paul confronts us with this reality before Christ, without Christ, we read on. We're still in chapter 3 here. We're going to get to our text in a second here, but we have to understand the full glimpse here. And we're going to see a picture into a post-Christ reality, into a reality after Christ, with Christ, a glimpse into the Christian life. Verse 25, we're still in chapter 3. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God, that is what we are called. Not to be confused with daughters of God or children of God, as some translators say, but decidedly sons of God with the emphasis on the airship that only a son could have had in the ancient world. Paul is saying we are sons because he's saying we are heirs. Heirs of what? Verse 29, Paul expounds. He says that if we are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. If you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are heirs of the promise of blessing given to Abraham, heirs according to a promise. And that's the argument that we're going to pick up in chapter 4. We're going to see Paul explain what it means to be heirs according to promise. And of course, in order to grasp the glory of freedom and inheritance received as heirs, you must first acknowledge the dark place from which Christ brought us. And that's what Paul does as he begins here in in chapter 4, first three verses. Look at uh, verse 1. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So this mention of the word guardians should immediately throw up a flag for us because we just heard that in chapter 3. Paul said there that the law was our guardian. The law was our guardian which held us captive, which imprisoned us. And now he's saying that There's like a child. Picture a child who is set up to inherit the full inheritance from his father. This child has to be a son in the ancient world. But this child 
while he is a child, he doesn't receive the inheritance. Though he's owner of everything, though he's in line to inherit everything, he's functionally no different than a slave because he lives under these guardians and masters and he has to submit to them. So Paul says, what's the difference essentially between this child heir and a slave? Because that child heir is like a slave, the guardian is essentially like a slave master. So uh, cool factoid here, Paul, a child who is an heir is kind of like a slave. What's the point? Verse three, verse three. In the same way, we also, so in the same way this child heir was enslaved, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul is saying to his readers here and he's saying to you, don't you forget, don't you forget where it is that you came from before Christ. Don't you forget where it is that you were saved from. You too were once that child in bondage, only able to submit to your guardian. And for each of us, we all have our own guardians, as Paul calls them. For the Jewish readers here, as we've seen established in chapter 3, it was the law for them that was their guardian, right? The law is what held them captive because the Jews had made the law to be a means of salvation. And so they looked to it as something that could deliver them when it could not. And so the result was a terrible slavery to something that could not deliver them. And for the Gentiles, for Paul's Gentile readers, for them it was their own pagan gods and their own rituals that they did to try to be saved. So they too were enslaved to something that could not deliver them. And in verse 3 here, Paul introduces this new phrase, the elementary principles of the world, which I think applies not to just Jews or Gentiles, but Jew and Gentile like all humans of all time among whom we are included. We are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does Paul mean by these elementary principles? Well, he's not specific, and I believe he is general on purpose because what I believe Paul is talking about is anything, anything that we might look to for satisfaction, for fulfillment, and salvation where it cannot be found. Some examples for you. Money, Sex, power, whatever it might be. These are things we look to for salvation, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, where they cannot be found. Paul says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, again, before Christ, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. What is it that makes something by nature not God? That is that it doesn't deliver. God delivers, God saves, God satisfies, God fulfills. Everything else is a false God. And so these elementary principles are gods that cannot save. So this is what it means to be a slave under the law, as Paul says it. That for the salvation and the satisfaction that our hearts, all of our hearts so desperately yearn for, we look, we put our faith in that which cannot satisfy and save we endlessly turn to these elementary principles which Paul calls in verse 9 weak and worthless. They're weak and worthless. No matter what it is, it cannot save. It cannot satisfy if it is not Jesus. 
Apart from Christ, we are slaves to an endless pursuit, an endless pursuit of self-righteousness and self-satisfaction that only results in more and more emptiness. Remember what Paul is doing here. He's reminding his readers, he's reminding us, don't you forget, don't you forget where it was that you were saved from. We were all once children. We were all once slaves. That is everyone's state before Christ. Aren't you glad there's an after Christ? As Paul reminds us, it is so important for us to come to a good understanding and an appreciation of where we came from before we came to know Jesus. But the beauty of the gospel is not only found in what we are saved from. Yes, it is there. But also in what we are saved to. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There are many, many, many things that we can learn about God from reading the Bible. As we read his word from beginning to end, lots of things stick out. But one thing is clear. God always knew all along what he was doing. God always knows what he is doing. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He holds the future in his hands. Nothing can thwart his plans. And Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, that is, according to his perfect wisdom, his perfect plan, and his perfect timing, God did two things. And the first is of central prominence, of central importance. God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. At the center of all human history is the incarnation. When God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. We're going to celebrate that in the month of December. And during Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of Jesus. We celebrate all that Jesus would do in his life, death, and resurrection. The redeeming work of Emmanuel cannot be separated from the birth of Emmanuel. They're included together. God sent forth his son with a purpose. What is that purpose? Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And herein you see the twofold layer in the good news. That what we are saved from namely slavery under the law, and what we are saved to, namely adoption as sons. Incredibly, God does not only pardon our sin and our inability to obey, but he also bestows on us the honor that only Jesus has earned and only Jesus deserves. We certainly haven't earned it. But even though we don't deserve it, sonship, And all of its inheritance is given to us in Christ. 
in God's redemption of sinners, there is not only great conditional change in our hearts, but also great positional change in our status before a holy God. God not only clothes us with Jesus' righteousness, but he crowns us with Jesus' honor. When we are adopted into the family of God, we are adopted as sons which means that we are heirs. In Romans, Paul says that we are heirs with Christ. With the Son of God himself, we are heirs. Heirs of what? Well, remember what Paul has said in chapter 3. We are heirs of promise. The promise originally given to Abraham so long ago that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we, in Christ, are recipients of that blessing. What is that blessing exactly? Well, I like the way that Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. I like the words he uses. He says of this blessing, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him, that is Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to you in Christ Jesus. What are we heirs of? We are heirs of grace, immeasurable riches of grace. And the greatest grace of God is the gift of himself. This is God's greatest gift. The ability to know him and to cherish him forever in an unbreakable bond. For what can separate us from the love of God? And all of this impossible apart from God sending forth his son. Also impossible from God sending forth his spirit. Look with me at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When the fullness of time had come, God the Father did two things. He sent forth his son, and he sent forth the spirit of his son. Do you notice the trinity here? We sang it this morning, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We believe, as the scripture teaches, that God is three persons in one and that each person of the Trinity is involved in our redemption. What beauty there is in this. God the Father sends his Son to redeem. And the Son, born under the law, born of a woman, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, justifying our legal standing before a holy God. And then the Spirit takes us through that legal accomplishment of the Son and actively connects us with the Father in experience. The veil is torn. The Spirit's work matters for us to experience, to experience our redeemed relationship with God in the here and the now, in the nitty-gritty, In the everyday, in this broken world, the Spirit helps us to live into the reality of being a child of God. Paul says that the Spirit prompts our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. 
do you notice the emphasis on family? On relationship? Relationship. You see, Christianity is not a a list of rules and regulations that you need to follow. It's not about trying really hard not to do the things you know you shouldn't do. No. Christianity is about being in a loving relationship with the living God who calls you his child. Saying Abba Father is not about calling God by that particular title as much as it is living into what that title affords. And that is being able to treat God like a loving father because he is your loving father and you are a cherished son. In our last verse here, verse 7, Paul does something really cool. He's succinctly summarizing his whole argument here, and he intentionally transfers from using the plural pronouns that he has been using, like our, we, us. And now he uses the singular pronoun, you. So he's no longer addressing the Galatians as a whole. He's no longer addressing the church as a whole, but he's addressing the individual. And so if you're here this morning as an individual, you can hear this directed to you. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you have put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then today you are a son of God, a privileged member of God's family. And Paul's last two words in our text are a good reminder for us that all of this, all of this is through God. Through God. Here is the reminder and the emphasis on grace. All of this was not the Galatians' doing, and we know it certainly wasn't our doing. Redemption from sin, adoption into God's family, sonship, heirship, all the rewards of our faith, all these are never a part of our own doing. They are gifts from God. They are always and only from His grace. We indeed, are overwhelmed as heirs of immeasurable grace. So then let our hearts be overwhelmed by grace. I invite you to stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We come knowing that we are so undeserving. And despite being so undeserving, we are recipients of incredible grace. Help us to be overwhelmed by that grace. To see your good news in all of its glory. To have an appreciation from where it is that we were saved from but help us also to realize the glory of being in your family. Open up our eyes to what it means to be an heir with you. We thank you because we have so much to be thankful for.
And especially in all this, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the pardon we received in him. And thank you for the adoption that was made possible because of his sacrifice. Help us as we go from here to always hold on to the reality that we are sons of God. And help us to live in that reality in the here and now. We know we need your help for this. And so we pray with much thankfulness and reliance on you. We pray in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.